0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 35 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and I've got another crazy one for you guys today. The first story is about the disappearance and murder of Caitlin Markham in 2011. So let's just get right into the episode. Everyone, sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Caitlin Markham was almost 22 years old when she was abducted and murdered. She grew up in a nice home with her parents and her younger sister. She would leave home shortly after high school, but she lived nearby and enrolled in the Art Institute of Ohio in Cincinnati. Caitlin went missing on August 13, 2011. Her fiancé, John Carter was the last person to see her alive, around midnight at her condo in the town of Fairfield. In April of 2013, the mystery of her disappearance was partially resolved when her remains were found about a half hour away just across the state line in Indiana. How Caitlin died is still unknown, but authorities have announced that it was most certainly homicide. Her story is told through various media reports over the last several years, but it would be several years before a person of interest would surface, only to fade again into the background. On August 12th, Caitlin and her fiancé went to an evening festival at a nearby church, a yearly event full of games and rides, food trucks, and revelry. They stayed for the evening but nothing occurred that would seem connected to Caitlin's disappearance. The next morning, Saturday, Caitlin showed up to one of her two jobs on time, ready for a full day. She drove to Dave's Bridal and began her shift at 10 a.m., then returned to her condo after the workday ended at 8.45 p.m. Her fiance, who lived in her neighborhood, dropped by shortly before she got home, according to reports. He had his own key, and this wasn't unusual. Carter reported, although Caitlin was tired after a full day of work, they both took magic mushrooms. A friend of Caitlin's came over to hang out, but sensed some tension or that the two wanted to be alone, and left a little after 9 p.m. Sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight, Carter would say goodnight to Caitlin and went off to a friend's house. Although, the two continued to text each other. He took a bag of her papers for throwing in a bonfire with him. According to his statements reported in local media, they were documents Caitlyn wanted to shred and she didn't own a shredder. The last message that he got was a text with a photo attached. It showed Caitlyn and was a photo that she treasured as it was an artistic shot taken by her boss. In the early morning hours of August 14th, Carter returned from his friends to his own bed at 4 a.m. He stated that he sent another text to Caitlin to wish her a good morning, expecting her to wake up in time for her shift at David's Bridal starting at 11 a.m. Having been up late, Carter slept until just before he had to get to work at 5 p.m. He got to work on time and noticed that he had never gotten a text response from Caitlin. He was unaware that she was also a no-show at work that day. He kept texting with no reply, and he began to get worried. Carter then asked his boss if he could leave early, and he drove over to Caitlin's condo at 7 p.m. to try to search for her. He let himself in. Another concerning sign was her car, still parked in the parking lot. At this point, it was obvious to him that she hadn't gone to work, and he reported becoming increasingly more worried. When he entered through the front door, he found no sign of Caitlin. Her dog was locked in a second-floor bedroom, not the usual place where she would have left her pet. He then began making phone calls. Carter's concern turned into a feeling of dread by his account. He began dialing for help. He called her father, who up until a few weeks earlier had lived in the same condo with her. He called and texted other friends, feeling somewhat frantic. He drove to a nearby friend's house because he couldn't reach a friend by phone and wanted to see if Kalen was there. At 7.58pm, he made a call to 911. The authorities walked into the same scene Kalen's fiance left at her condo except he'd already let her dog, Murphy, outside. There were no signs of disturbance, yet a few clues indicated that something was off. When Carter arrived, he found Murphy in the wrong room. The dog was normally left in the bathroom if she was going out. The police noticed that Caitlin's purse and car keys were found in the same room where the dog had been locked, but her cell phone was nowhere to be found. Attempts to ping her phone failed, according to the police. The search involved many volunteers who scoured the nearby area and began posting flyers around Fairfield, the Cincinnati suburb where she lived. Her phone records were checked, but no activity registered. None of her bank accounts had been touched either. A quietness invaded the community as the days passed without a sign. The search would continue, and the story picked up media attention. An organization called EquiSearch came up from Texas and, with their horses, searched the area in the first few weeks of Caitlin's disappearance. Radio and TV stations ran the story, including several interviews on air with John Carter. The community had high hopes because nearly everyone had heard about the missing art student. Caitlin was an outgoing, cheerful person with many friends. Along with her friends from two jobs, she had a collection of art school friends and acquaintances through an internship. At the same time of her disappearance, she was also getting ready to graduate, and she and Carter had planned to move to Colorado. Kaylin was born on August 16, 1989, and adopted while still an infant. Within days of her disappearance, she was listed as a missing person, and her family organized a large search effort. She and Carter were together for six years when Caitlin vanished, and he continued to try and find her, but the leads would soon go cold, and a year later, she was still a missing person. On April 7th, 2013, it was a typical breezy spring day. Another Sunday, and a couple decided to spend the morning searching for scrap metal along Big Cedar Creek in Cedar Grove, Indiana. The area that they chose was littered with trash. But Andy Hicks had noticed something that stood out among the aluminum cans and debris. A jawbone. When Hicks bent down to look more closely, he found a human skull still wrapped in a Kroger plastic shopping bag. He later told the news that it didn't look like anyone was trying to hide the bones. He immediately called the police. It had been 20 months since Caitlin went missing. The remains were in such a condition that dental records had to be used for identification. The dump site was 30 miles from Caitlin's condo, and there was a short wait to hear the news. The remains belonged to Caitlin, who would have been four months from her 24th birthday. For her family, it was a relief to know what they had suspected she was a homicide victim but the skeleton remains yielded no clue as to how she was murdered. The evidence at the dump site would provide no clear break in the case either, and again the trail went cold. Police knew that Kaylin was murdered, and they believed, based on evidence at her condo, that she knew her killer. After interviewing dozens of friends and acquaintances, along with family members and neighbors, they had no eyewitnesses and no suspects. Carter was the last person to see Caitlin alive, but was officially cleared after interviews with police, including a voice stress test. Local authorities reached out for help from the FBI. It wasn't until 2018, now nine years after Caitlin was murdered and dumped in a trash field, that a promising lead developed relating to another similar murder case. On August 1st, 2018, The mother of 23-year-old Ellen Wick reported her daughter missing. No one had seen or heard from Ellie for two days, and within a month, a suspect named Michael Strauss was arrested, according to reports. He was tried and convicted with copious evidence of guilt. The crime took place in Westchester, just a few minutes' drive from Fairfield. Both victims were young women. Ellen was murdered by asphyxiation after Strauss had placed a bag over her head. The body was also dumped in a field. Strauss made a plea deal, agreeing to plead guilty for a reduced charge from aggravated murder to murder. He then received the maximum sentence, 15 years to life, according to the reports. He would be parole eligible in about two decades. He had little motivation to confess to another murder, but there are several facts that caused police to rule him out as a viable suspect in Caitlin's killing. He admitted to stalking Ellie for months before he killed her, and she had called police for help during this period. He was also her ex-boyfriend at the time. But what made Strauss a likely suspect, briefly, was the fact that he knew Caitlin, At least one photograph surfaced from social media showing Strauss pictured with Carter. Although the authorities cleared Carter as a suspect, there are several facts that cast suspicion on his whereabouts and actions, according to reports. He has only a partial alibi for the period in which the murder took place. Although he was partying with friends, Witnesses do not have the same story about his constant presence among them. He had a key to her condo, and the party that he attended was only a few miles away. A witness reported tension between the couple on the night that she was killed. Caitlin's best friend stated that Caitlin and John had an argument two days before she was murdered. John stated that during the 911 call that he made that there had been no recent conflict. Kaitlin agreed to go with Carter to the Friday night festival, although she was tired. She agreed to do mushrooms with him on the Saturday, even though she had a long day at work and expected more of the same the next day. He was heavily involved in her life when she was murdered and had access to her condo. Kaitlyn's remains were discovered within two miles of Carter's family's property. Despite saying that he sent her a good morning text before he went to bed at 4 a.m., phone records do not show such a text was sent. A Facebook page dedicated to finding justice for Caitlin cast doubts on Carter's veracity on several points. The police have not indicated any new leads in solving Caitlin's murder, even now, years after she was killed. David Markham, Caitlin's father, has expressed dismay and frustration with the slow development of the case. As 2015 ended, Markham held a press conference. The Fairfield Police issued this statement shortly afterward. On December 18, 2015, David Markham held a press conference requesting that the investigation into the murder of Caitlin be handed over to the Butler County Sheriff's Office. This Fairfield Police Department has been assisted by several agencies during this investigation, all in an effort to bring the individual responsible for Kaitlyn's death to justice. We are open to other law enforcement agencies reviewing the investigation. We have spoken with the Butler County Sheriff's Office and BCI. We will try to arrange a meeting with them in the near future. Butler County agreed to take a look, but Kaitlyn's case file still officially rests with the Fairfield Police. It has been nearly 10 years since she was murdered. Currently, a $100,000 reward is offered for information leading to an arrest. But there have been no arrests, no clues, and no answers. I'm surprised that I didn't hear about this case until just recently. I live in Butler County, and I feel like this should have been much bigger news so if anyone listening may have something to add or know any information, please contact the Butler County Sheriff's Station. Now our next story comes from yourghoststories.com. As always, I'll be reading from the author's perspective. I was eight years old when my Aunt Lindy, who lived in Tennessee, gave me a porcelain Joker doll that had what looked like a red teardrop. We were getting ready for bed, and since we were staying with them, We didn't have anywhere to put it. My mom set it on the shelf in the front room. While my mom and I were lying there talking, we got the feeling that something was watching us. When we looked around, no one was in there and everyone was asleep. My mom looked over to the Joker doll and noticed that it was pointed towards us, knowing that she had faced it toward the door. My mom got up and turned it to face the wall. We laid there talking for a few more minutes when we heard a scratching noise on the shelf, like something heavy was being turned around. When we looked over to the shelf, the Joker doll was pointed towards us again. Thinking that it was my cousin, we went into her room to see she was asleep. I knew this as I hit her leg and she was never a good faker. After realizing that she was asleep, We went back into the front room, and my mom laid the Joker flat on its face. Later that night, with everyone still asleep, my mom got up to use the bathroom and realized that the Joker was lying on its back. So my mom got it and put it in the bag with our clothes, and the feeling as if something was watching us left. The next morning we got a call about a house. In the process, my mom told my dad that she wanted to get rid of the doll. My dad said no because my aunt gave it to me. We were unloading some stuff and my mom put the Joker doll in our hallway closet hoping that my dad wouldn't find it. Much to our dismay, my dad watched my mom put it there. My dad brought it into my bedroom and he put it on my dresser. He said, this is where I want it to stay. The feeling of being watched returned. I was lying there, glancing at my dresser at the Joker doll, and I noticed that it had an evil smile on its face. I yelled for my mom, and when she came in, she noticed it too, so she put it in my drawer. The next morning, we were telling my dad about what had happened. He did not believe in that stuff, and he told us to shut up, and that we were making it up. My mom decided to call my Aunt Wendy and ask her if they ever noticed anything out of the ordinary and my aunt said yes. That was the reason that they put it in the shed out back. Later that night my dad came home from work and we told him what my aunt had told us. Unfortunately my aunt denied it all making my mom and I look like idiots. So again that night my mom put it back in the dresser drawer she went to turn the coffee pot on so dad would have coffee the next morning and she went to bed. The next day, my mom and I were sitting in the kitchen. My dad came in, holding the Joker doll, and told us that he wanted it to stay on my dresser. Being eight years old, I knew I had better listen to him and I went and I put it on my dresser. He then started cussing, saying that he didn't see any problem with the Joker and that we better keep it on my dresser. He didn't believe in stuff like that. I asked my mom if she would lie down with me, and she said yes, still feeling an evil presence in the room. My mom said a prayer with me, and we fell asleep. The next morning, when my dad got up, he came into the room where we were, and he told my mom that he wanted the doll out of there. My mom says that she thought that he didn't believe in things like we had been telling him, yet he just now decides that he wants the doll out of the house? He began telling her that the night before, he got up to use the restroom, stepped into my room, and the Joker doll had an evil smile on its face, and he heard an evil laugh. Now believing us, he went in my room, got the Joker doll, and took it outside and tried to burn it. Only the clothes burned, and the face turned black from the smoke. Then he got it out of the trash barrel and he hit it with a hammer, but only part of its face chipped. Getting freaked out, he took it to the neighborhood dumpster and he threw it in there. We never saw it again, and everything in my room went back to normal. A week later, I became friends with a boy in my class, and we all were over at his parents' for supper when I looked in the front room. On a shelf, there was a Joker doll, just like the one that I used to have. Later, my mom asked if she could look at it, and she noticed a mark where it was made that mine didn't have, and it didn't have the red teardrop. After seeing that, my mom asked where they got it from. They told her what store, and my mom called my Aunt Wendy to ask her about my doll. She told my mom the same store. Mom then asked my aunt about the teardrop, and my aunt said that she had asked the store clerk about it as it was the only one. The teardrop didn't look like any kind of paint, that it looked more like blood. When my dad got on the phone, he asked my aunt about it again. My aunt told him what they had experienced. They thought that it didn't have anything to do with the Joker doll, even though she said that they felt an evil presence, like something watching them, which went away when the Joker doll was in the shed. You can choose to believe this or not, but if you don't, please don't post any rude comments. I was wondering if the reason the Joker doll was like that, could it have been made by someone that was into witchcraft? Our final story comes from the same author as the last one, and it's about their experience at their local Crybaby Bridge. I know, the title makes it sound like this is made up, but this is a true story about a crybaby bridge in Dennis, Mississippi. When I was 18, some friends and I were talking about this crybaby bridge, that if you went over it, you could hear a baby crying. My friends, who were in their 30s, and I began being curious. We wanted to go check it out. So the next day, me and my friends their five-year-old and two-year-old, and another's friend's kids, an eight-year-old and a twelve-year-old, decided to go. When we got to the bridge, you had to get out and climb up on it, because they took the road out that went all the way to it. We all climbed up on the bridge. It had rusty nails, and the bridge was concrete. It also had a sign hanging on it, but I can't remember what it said. Anyways, back to the story. When we were up on the bridge, we all felt a chill run through us, and it was the middle of summer. We were there for about an hour, and nothing was happening, so we decided to leave. As we were turning around to leave, my friend's five-year-old said that he heard a baby crying. I went to the end of the bridge, where my friend and her husband were. I asked them if Ethan, their little boy, ever heard the story of the bridge, and they both said no. So I told them what Ethan had told me, and they asked him, and he told them the same thing. He told them that he heard a baby crying, and his dad told him, no, he didn't, because there wasn't any baby around. Ethan then started crying and said, Daddy, I do hear a baby crying, and it is down there on that rock. He pointed to the rock, and that's where it said the baby was supposed to have landed. So after he told us all of that, we all got in the vehicle and left, and we never did go back there. What I still wonder about all this time, could he have seen that baby down there on the rock? Could if he had, could he have heard the baby crying? I know kids can hear and see things that we can't. Ethan's mom and dad told me later that day that they never even talked about the bridge around Ethan, his sister, or the other kids. And the first time Ethan had seen that bridge was the day that we went. It is said that the woman who threw her baby over the rail did it because she had the baby and she wasn't married. And it was against her family's beliefs. And the baby landed on the rock that Ethan had pointed to. The next day, they asked Ethan again to see if his story would change. That would give us any kind of sign that he was being funny. And he told us the exact same thing that he said the day before. I know this didn't happen to me, but I was there and I heard Ethan, and I saw him point to the rock. I even asked Ethan myself if he had ever heard the story about the bridge, and he said no. So you can choose to believe this or not, but everyone is entitled to their own opinions, and I respect that. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you did, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really does help others find this podcast. Make sure that you join us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. If you do enjoy the show, please consider joining the Ohio Unsolved Patreon, where you'll get instant access to monthly bonus episodes starting at the $5 tier and up. Once again... Thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.